Hello, and welcome back to From His to Ought. In this episode, we will investigate a widely publicized report from Data and Society, a nonprofit that publishes works designed to, quote, challenge the power and purpose of technology in society. The report, published in 2018, claims to explore a loose affiliation of personalities that, through appearances and videos together, constitute a network of influenced peddlers creating, quote, pathways to radicalization. Despite the pedigree of the report's author, the perhaps less than descriptive name of the publishing organization, and the acclaim with which the report was met, in the end, its technical merits do little more than beg the question it purports to address. Come with me as we dive into Data and Society's report on YouTube's Alternative Influence Network. To get started, I thought I would substantiate my claim that this report was met with much fanfare. In the Sunday edition of its paper, the New York Times editorial board said the report identified a network where a seemingly innocuous YouTube channel may recommend other, more inflammatory channels, which may in turn recommend even more extremist content. Across the pond, The Guardian claimed people interested in conservative and libertarian ideas are quickly exposed to white nationalist ones on the basis of this report. The report's author has been featured at least twice on NPR to talk about these issues. In the time since its publication, the report has garnered over 250 citations on Google Scholar. The bottom line is that even if you have not heard of the report, people in some of the most influential media, academic, and activist positions likely have. We will explore this research from a technical perspective and discuss how past over-reliance on it helped generate fashionable conclusions in journalism and research. Now, the Alternative Influence Network or AIN as I will call it, does include some controversial people, so allow me to pin my colors to the mast. There are some truly reprehensible ideas held by some in the network, and some of the individuals have demonstrated themselves to be similarly abhorrent. In no way is this podcast episode an endorsement of those views or people. In short, I believe all humans are equal before the eyes of God, and that this should be reflected in the view of the state. I find notions of proactive violence and defensive ideologies to be counterproductive and dangerous. The focus of this podcast episode will be to investigate the claims by the researcher that other influencers in the network and YouTube's algorithms serve as de facto conduits to more extremist beliefs. By looking at the report's methodology, and I use that term loosely, and decomposing its evidence from its motivation and conclusion, we will see the report is better conceptualized as a hybrid between reporting and an extensive qualitative editorial piece. To understand this report's limitations and overstatements, we are going to look at a few broad categories of critique including methodological and validity concerns, and how work like this can be laundered to make claims well beyond the actual evidence. When looking at the report's methodology, we see the author chose a peculiar sampling method. In proper scientific research, when it is impossible or infeasible to study the entire population as a whole, i.e. all videos from all people across all time, researchers will opt to sample from their target population of study. Combining a deliberative, carefully executed methodology with some form of logical and usually quantitative analysis allows researchers to vet competing explanations for a phenomenon. In this case, the report claims to study the Alternative Influence Network on YouTube. This network is presented as a series of connections between a quote hodgepodge of internet celebrities. Rather than establishing this formal relationship structure, the author simply declares it, then uses it to motivate how she samples the videos she analyzes. Though she later admits the boundaries for this group are fluid, and her sample is more for illustrative than comprehensive purposes, the implication of these facts is insufficiently addressed. First, to claim a distinct population exists, in this case the AIN, one needs to establish that its structure has reasonable boundaries, such that even if things were to change in the future, there is a reliable and objective way to identify 
those in the network, and those not in it. Failing to do so means that the results of any study based on a sample from this population suffers from threats to external validity, namely one is unable to make reasonable claims about to whom the research findings apply. This is in the best case, by the way. If there are other flaws, and there are, then the entire set of findings may be in question, or be little more than a work of circular logic. Now, aside from the fact the author does not establish theoretical bounds for the AIN structure, there are other important limitations to the research here. When scientists wish to study a population, the sampling scheme must match the type of work to be performed. In many studies, this involves taking random or nearly random samples from the population. This is done to avoid systematic biases being reflected in the research results. For example, let's assume you were to study the political beliefs of different religions. If, out of convenience, you could only survey people from a given geographic part of the country, the results should be conservatively generalized, if at all, when going beyond that region. In the event you do not randomly sample within that region, you might not be able to do that at all, unless you can make a convincing case that those you surveyed are not meaningfully different from those you did not. Thus, the importance of random sampling for generating representative insights rests here. However, alternative sampling approaches do exist. Let's say you were looking to study themes of congressional arguments across time. You could extract congressional transcripts from all hearings and legislative debates, and analyze these data to tell you something about the parameters related to the political arguments being discussed. In such a case, random sampling is not necessary, as the entire population is your sample. You collected all the transcripts. Thus, your methodology affords you the ability to make some descriptive assessments about the research topics at hand, namely congressional arguments. Well, what about situations where it is quite a bit harder to collect data? Let's say you're trying to study how some people become addicted to heroin. It is unlikely that you know who comprises this population in its entirety, thus you cannot study the population as a whole. Further, you cannot send out a random survey as you don't know to whom to send it. Even if a subpopulation is known, they are unlikely to respond to your survey given the sensitive nature of the topic. In such cases, an approach called snowball sampling is sometimes employed. In short, this approach means researchers reach out to a small number, perhaps even one, research subject, and the survey is conducted. Next, the researcher makes some privacy guarantees and asks if this user knows one or more other users that the researcher might contact. This process is repeated until a sufficiently meaningful sample is surveyed, as dictated by the aims of the research. While this approach is justified, it has some limitations, namely that each connection between users is contingent on the relationship between the nodes in the network, thus potentially reducing how generalizable the findings are. Here's where we get to the AIN approach. The author claims to utilize a snowball approach to collect data from select YouTube creators published between January 2017 and March 2018. In essence, for a given video, the author collected data about who is hosting and who is making a guest appearance and or collaborating in the video. In turn, she then goes to that guest channel or channels to see with whom he or she has collaborated. Presumably, this would have been done for all videos within the specified time frame. Instead, however, it appears that only select videos were included in the network analysis, resulting in a subset of the possible connections being included. Let's look at a couple examples to illustrate why this approach could lead to a particular conclusion without giving countervailing evidence a fair shake. We will use Dave Rubin's Rubin Report as an example, as it is a fairly popular digital show where guests from different ideological backgrounds are represented. Though it began more progressive, it has, in earnest, trended more conservative slash libertarian in recent years. This selection is appropriate for three other reasons as well. Its host, Dave Rubin, and the author of the AIN report have made their disdain for one another quite evident online, see Twitter. 
Dave Rubin is prominently featured in the report, being highlighted in a case analysis and having his name or that of his show mentioned some 77 times in the document. And third, the report's author has stated publicly that Dave Rubin was the originating node for her network. That is, the sampling sprung first from his channel. Okay, so a cursory review of Rubin's channel from the sampling period reveals guests spanning the spectrum on degree of controversiality, heterodoxy of viewpoint, political orientation, and profession. A rough count is that Rubin hosted or was on a panel with at least 100 guests in this period. Notably, however, I count at most about 20 connections to Rubin in the AIN report. Recall this report is supposed to be bi-directional too, so one would expect Rubin's connections to account for his appearances not only as a host, but also as a guest in others' videos. Pixel limits being what they are, the network graph is not easily interrogated. Nor does it seem a public copy of the dataset is available. I asked. No response. Nevertheless, this count is approximately correct. That means, even ignoring Rubin's appearances on other channels, only about one in five possible connections to Rubin are represented in this report's analysis. Again, were these randomly selected, thus increasing the generalizability of the report's claims? The report makes no mention that the snowballing was random. Indeed, such a selection method is intrinsically non-random. So what was or were the inclusion criteria? It's not laid out in the report, but let's look at a few examples that might inform us about any particular biases being built into the report. From Rubin's show, figures ranging from the truly controversial to the social justice skeptical to the plainly conservative are included. For example, Stefan Molyneux, Lauren Southern, Candace Owens, Ben Shapiro, Dennis Prager, and Jordan Peterson. Some not included in the report range from the centrist to the left-leaning heterodox, such as Professor Steven Pinker, Brett Weinstein, Laura Kipnis, herself a vocal critic of Donald Trump, as well as what she calls the sexual paranoia of Title IX reinterpretation. Further, former Democrat and recent independent California gubernatorial candidate Mike Schellenberger is not included, nor is technological ethicist Tristan Harris, or the women's rights advocate Ayan Hirsi Ali. Had such connections been included and their extended networks mapped, the premise of the research would necessarily change, i.e., the sometimes tacit, sometimes explicit claim about YouTube pathways to radicalization would need to be rethought. This point is likely also true when not restricting ourselves to the particular 16-month time window of the AIN report, yet another decision that would benefit from some explanation and possibly a sensitivity analysis. Similarly, cherry-picked YouTube comments are used throughout the report to paint a picture that is, at best, representative of a minority of viewers but that are instead used to affirm the report's radicalization claims. A quick note that these sampling problems also have issues for claims of internal validity. That is, that watching AIN member videos leads to radicalization. The report fails to capture a representative balance of the connections, thus the ability to assess de-radicalization, alternative forms of radicalization, or null effects are structurally prohibited. The article's premise is unfalsifiable given the data selected for inclusion. This is not the same thing as validating the article's premise. Though this aside for internal validity has been short, that is because the AIN is not primarily a work of science, so any causal claims should be considered speculative, pending further evidence anyway. Thus, though this is a big issue for the profundity of the results, we will move on. Let's talk networks. Fundamentally, the unit of analysis in a network is a connection. For this report, a connection is an instance in which one influencer appeared in a video with another as a guest, host, or collaborator, at least allegedly. Unfortunately, without being able to audit the report's data or get a response from the author or publishing organization, I cannot verify the nature of the stated connections. Many do seem to hold up to present-day YouTube queries, but other depicted connections have been contested. 
In a prominent response to the report, YouTube political commentator and former vice journalist Tim Pool noted that the network graph appeared to show several connections to him that did not exist. What did he mean by that? Well, it seems the data visualization in this report confuses rather than informs in some areas. Having lines intersect certain nodes, that's influencers, but not actually representing connections to them. Further, some connections throughout the visualization seem to be more happenstance than actual collaborations, i.e. two or more parties happen to be in the same unplanned live stream, or something to that nature. Such appearances would hardly constitute a high-speed rail towards extremism. Moving in from the 10,000-foot view, let's take a look at a key area of contention since the report's release. Does a connection constitute anything more than association? And if so, what is it? Here, the author oscillates between her, quote, pathway to radicalization frame and taking a more appropriate and reserved approach by acknowledging that many of the connections are conversations and that some even approach debate status, albeit to varying degrees. As debates involve disagreement of some kind, they could be expected to de-radicalize or reduce extremism, just as much as the opposite. Indeed, this is what subsequent research suggests. The funneling of users to videos, either algorithmically or due to viewer discretion, generally does not move users towards the far right, and many of the sub-communities lumped together in the AIN have net flow leftward ideologically. Now, the author of the AIN report has, and will again, note that many of these papers cite her own. While true, the evidence on the whole cuts against the crude and selective aggregation in the AIN report, and some of these papers have been redrafted to make their work less reliant on the type of sentiments embedded in the AIN article, but more on this later. To close out our reflection on what a connection means, I ask you to consider your favorite interview show, podcast, or YouTube channel. If the creator hosts someone, are they serving as a de facto amplifier for that person's content? Are they endorsing it? Sure, a platform is temporarily shared, and audience cross-pollination is possible, but does talking to someone truly pose a danger more grave than the counterfactual, where only the most ideologically pure and righteous can converse with each other on large digital platforms? In such a world, who decides who can talk? And why? Moving on, let's dispense with another central notion derived from this qualitative assessment. That some of these influences are somehow unique in their branding or positioning. This is an important matter as it relates to the discriminant validity of any labeling scheme to emerge from this paper. Are characteristics of these people sufficiently unique as to distinguish them from other types of media and or content creators on YouTube? Some form of influencer and brand techniques indeed characterize almost every single media figure and organization. Whether it's based on institutional legacy or riding an emergent wave, nearly all political and news media do this, except for UC SPAN. God bless you. We love you. The New York Times does it. So does ABC, CNN, Fox News. So do their hosts. As do those who form the new media landscape, from crooked media to the Daily Wire. So do independent journalists and reporters like Matt Taibbi and Glenn Greenwald. Indeed, even Data and Society itself, the organization that put this report forward, uses versions of such technique to establish a sense of credibility by appealing to its empirical body of work and research claims. Further, the organization bills itself as independent, engaging with multiple perspectives to help try and inform public policy and debate. The organization's funding and an assessment of its ideological engagement are available in the episode artifact. In short, however, branding is ubiquitous and instrumental. The author claims AIN members leverage relatability and authenticity to build rapport with their communities. Again, I fail to see how this is distinct from online influencers in general, and maybe that's the point. A third branding dimension is, quote, accountability, meaning that AIN members get feedback from viewers in the form of comments, likes, shares, etc. Aside from the fact that this too fails to discriminate AIN from other influencers, analogs for so-called accountability exist for legacy institutions as well. Think number of newspaper subscribers, letters to the editor, Nielsen ratings, social media engagement, etc. 
However, it is true that these dynamics can lead to audience capture, where a creator contributes to a feedback loop where his or her content is designed to elicit a particular response from their audience. Audience capture is present in, though not unique to, the AIN, nor does it affect all members equally. Finally, the author notes that AIN members adopt an underdog or countercultural frame. Here, too, we see a dimension that cannot distinguish the AIN from independent media more generally. As a general rule, given the perspective of these individuals, and note here I'm not referring to those advocating patently abhorrent ideologies, their views are indeed heterodox and relatively undercovered in legacy media. Thus, countercultural framing is aptly noted by the author because it actually reflects a largely accurate description of many adopting this position. Okay, so we've established this work has some structural deficiencies regarding its inbuilt biases, lack of generalizability, and its, at times, contradictory framing. However, so long as this report is seen as reporting narrowly and descriptively on a subset of YouTube connections at a particular point in time, there are fewer and less substantial weaknesses. If one views this report as an extensive, qualitative editorial that adopts a particular interpretive frame, I argue there's limited harm in the report and that the author's descriptions of the branding dynamics and inter-influencer collaborations are descriptive, albeit somewhat limited in their revelatory nature. However, there's a final class of issues worthy of contention, the liberties taken by the author in reading in intent to the connections, and how such liberties were conflated with the actual state of the evidence in media as well as in subsequent research. The author's claims that the members of the AIN wholly reject norms of objectivity and neutrality, as opposed to their legacy media counterparts, is unsupported. No doubt, the author would contend that her extended YouTube viewing sessions and qualitative training give her credibility in making such a statement. However, alternative explanations must be addressed. The argument made by many in the AIN is not that objectivity is unimportant. To the contrary, these influencers are cultural critics highlighting both actual and perceived biases in legacy media that interfere with such a noble aim. Rather than adopt the pretense of neutrality like their mainstream counterparts, many in the AIN attempt to honestly, though perhaps not neutrally, relay information to their viewers. Is this information sometimes biased and or incorrect? You bet. The fact authenticity is not prioritized in legacy media is not evidence of an orientation towards objective reporting, nor is it the fault of media critics. I should note, however, that there is an increasingly rare breed of genuine fact-first journalists. They are too few, underpaid, and arguably constitute one of the only remaining bases of integrity for their institutions. Alas, more on them in a future episode. Plenty of surveys and research demonstrate a declining trust in legacy media, for a variety of reasons. Links to some of these are in the episode artifact. Some of these causes, such as agenda-driven framing and the availability of alternatives, understandably contribute to the discounting of the former information oligopoly. There are risks in the new media landscape, too, but it is inaccurate to paint even partisan alternatives as fundamentally, quote, facilitating radicalism or serving as vessels toward extremist content. As I've said, there are examples where the content can be genuinely and objectively established as extreme and reprehensible, given natural law and just cultural norms. However, when the AIN author claims that, quote, the AIN as a whole facilitates radicalism through social networking practices, this is the type of quote that catches the eyes of reporters who are either unwilling or unable to vet the claim's evidence. Again, in this report, there is no overarching evidence of radicalization. Instead, the author's ideological priors seem to set the bounds quite strictly as to what is acceptable. Sympathetic, uncritical media members greeted this report with headlines accepting the article's premise as its conclusion. In The Verge's less-than-measured headline, How White Supremacists Are Thriving on YouTube, the reporter claims the AIN report established influencers encourage people to adopt a, quote, 
more radical set of views over time by first encouraging them to reject all non-ideological media and then introducing them to extremist figures who offer alternative worldviews. The AIN researcher further states that even in the absence of recommendation algorithms, the AIN provides a pathway towards radicalization. Notice how neither the reporter nor the researcher's claims are derived from the evidence of the report, except through insinuated guilt by association. Furthermore, it seems that whether accidentally, implicitly, or consciously, these two acknowledge the currency that comes with establishing what constitutes an extremist view. It is convenient, albeit grossly inaccurate, to paint the entire AIN as some form of misogynist, racist, or otherwise unjustly prejudicial. To be sure, again, there are some in the network that fall into one or more of these categories. I'm not interested in defending their reprehensible and cowardly worldviews, so I won't. Instead, I will highlight the categorical sleight of hand being played in this report. The author acknowledges the ideological diversity embedded within the AIN, but in the same report collapses this complexity into an instrument by which prejudicial ideas proliferate. Ask yourself whether someone saying, oh, sure, you're not a racist, but you enable and proliferate racist ideas, constitutes that person giving an honest, good-faith assessment of your character. That's what was done, at its network scale, in the AIN. On balance, however, evidence suggests that some subgroups lumped into the AIN have been shown to pull viewers from, rather than push viewers towards, far-right content. Here, I'm referring to the other research papers I mentioned earlier. Speaking of, we've reached the beginning of the end, so let's take a fun jaunt down memory lane. In December 2020, I was doom-scrolling through Twitter and came across an early publication of a report claiming to examine how ideological groups use YouTube and how these groups drift between watching videos from different political categories. To my surprise, a conflation similar to that of the AIN report appeared to be reflected in this research. Unlike the AIN report, however, this research was to be published in the Proceedings of the Natural Academy of Sciences, a prestigious multidisciplinary scientific journal that I will refer to as PNAS going forward. My criticisms of the ivory tower and bureaucratic creep that threatened the sciences notwithstanding, this journal is actually quite good. I, like several others on Twitter, dove into the paper to understand its findings and ascertain how they determined a labeling scheme. Well, in the appendix of this early copy, the researchers claimed to be relying on labeling schemes from other papers. The problem? They misapplied the labeling scheme from one, shunting many of the less controversial, though still heterodox, creators into the far-right category. A second paper they referenced was a conference paper that relied heavily on the AIN report for its motivation and categorization scheme. This paper only looked at unidirectional flow of viewers, thus it too suffered from inbuilt structural bias, meaning it was unable to assess general viewership patterns. Neither of the two referent papers justified the initial labeling scheme in the paper I came across in December 2020. So what gives? Well, we're not sure, but I have an educated guess as to what some of the dynamics were. This series of events appears to have been a case of what I call research telephone. Much like the game you played when you were a kid, having one person whisper in the ear of another, repeating this process again and again until the last kid had been reached, and then comparing the two now very different messages, a similar phenomenon can happen in social science. Though the AAN report was not a work of science itself, its expedient findings conform to what some researchers might expect to find. Thus, when researchers are looking to cite past works to motivate and make the case for their own research, it is not uncommon for them to point to such publications to do so. In the context of motivating the research agenda, this is not necessarily a bad thing. For example, one might say, the issue of digital media's capacity for ideological exchange is complex and is receiving a lot of attention. And here, citing the AIN among other reports would be entirely appropriate. However, what is a problem is pretending that the original report laid out a reliable and valid labeling scheme through a rigorous, honest, and impartial assessment of the evidence. 
This appears to have been taken for granted in the translation phases between the AIN report and the conference paper, as well as between the conference paper and the PNAS paper. It is likely that at each step, certain aspects of other research were assumed valid and some liberties were taken in order to extend labeling schemes into more explicit, though still inaccurate, fashion. To be clear, the AIN report's author is not responsible for others potentially misapplying her research, though this is where clarity and honest representation of the facts would help minimize such prospects. So why should you care about papers that some nerds, myself included, are arguing about into the late hours of a December night? Well, for now, academic publications remain a primary way by which a collective sense is made. In short, they serve as the forum by which supposedly objective understandings are discovered and or arrived at. What was happening here, mistakenly or otherwise, was the laundering of certain ideas about what constitutes extremist slash far-right beliefs into the corpus of knowledge that is the social scientific literature. This is not a unique occurrence, but all such occurrences should be rigorously vetted and revised where appropriate. So how does the story end? Well, to the credit of all but one of the PNAS researchers, it seems the team worked quickly to adopt a more honest scheme that delineated those who oppose what they see as excess postmodern social justice ideology from those who are truly far-right. Oh, and the results suggest that on balance, this first group, the anti-woke group, more likely de-radicalizes than radicalizes. Though, more work is needed to understand multiple pathways and poles of radicalization online. Regarding that one researcher to whom I refuse credit, well, he made the intellectually lazy case on Twitter that it is impossible to replicate all past research, and thus he and his team could not be blamed for prior labeling schemes. I suppose true enough, except that the labeling scheme lacked validity, a balanced assessment of the evidence, and could have led to results that deviate from the objective dynamics of inter-community viewership on YouTube. If this had happened in an ideologically convenient manner, I have little faith this researcher would have had the conscience or interest to interrogate the results further. The TLDR, I'm grateful the team revised their analysis, engaged with feedback, and ultimately got their paper published. Future research should closely track the evolution of influencers across the political spectrum. Indeed, even some of the groups studied in the original AIN report have fragmented and or migrated. As we close, I want to acknowledge some of the public criticisms levied at the AIN researcher. Her past and present advocacy of deplatforming, that is, removing people from social media or other digital platforms, raised some eyebrows. My antenna went up when I saw the Data and Society team of which she was a part announced they were working to, quote, set frames for reporters and journalists about this type of research. That is, they were going to provide some instruction about how to think and talk about these issues. Their inclusion is not to pile on the author. To the contrary, it is to acknowledge that this individual seems to have an agenda-driven motivation, and at least some of her work. Honestly, I don't falter for that. Her field of communications is mixed on whether researchers should embody or aim for certain types of scientific rigor and objectivity, or indeed, if such things even exist. Further, she's vocal on social media about things she seems to care about. Unlike most these days, we at FreedomCast welcome such transparency. That does not mean we ignore the signal it can provide about how her beliefs could color her research, but it does mean we believe she's entitled to those opinions, to express them online, and even to disagree with content such as this podcast episode. Hey, and if so, great, let's chat. I've reached out for comment extensively, but no dice yet. The emails, per our usual arrangement, are in the episode artifact. Note, finally, I have not mentioned the author's name. Though listeners can look at the artifact to view the full report and other materials I've referenced, it is explicitly not my goal to generate animosity towards the author. A lack of good faith on one side of the equation does not justify bad faith on the part of the other. Her style of engagement with critics has undermined more than helped her case in the eyes of many. Still others see the harassment she receives as validation that she's taking on the reprehensible and that her work's conclusions were correct rather than just a restatement of her premises. 
Rather than play into this Kafkaesque trap, I'm working to be a small part of creating a better world as are my partners at ReadingCast. So, though I recommend reviewing the episode artifact for deeper insights and documentation on the issues covered in this episode, do not harass the author. That's not who you are, and doing so is counterproductive. Analyze her work, review my critiques, and come to your own conclusion. If you disagree with my perspective, please reach out on social media or attend our inaugural FreedomCast community livestream this December. Regarding the report's author, perhaps a one-on-one discussion in the future is in the cards. I'm not holding my breath, but it would be to the author's imminent credit should she publicly defend her work on the so-called Alternative Influence Network. Bridging the gap between interpretive imputation and solid, validated research demands such confrontation. Not with me, but with the process. I hope you are better equipped when the next viral news story makes overwrought claims about ideological groups with which you have peripheral or no familiarity. Further, in considering the topics covered in this podcast, we should all reflect on the necessity of free speech as a principal mechanism by which we collectively make sense and arrive at a path forward, together. Indeed, it tends to be those with whom we most disagree that we need to understand. Talking to someone, seek to understand, and even challenge their perspective is a productive force that over the long arc of history can make our world more just. And with that, I bid you adieu. Until next time, stay honest, stay rigorous, and keep speaking freely. We at FreedomCast appreciate your feedback and engagement, so feel free to reach out to us on social media or at freedomcast.locals.com. You can find out more about our network at freedomcast.us. From Is to Ought is a FreedomCast Network production.